arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Roy Garrison is a liability. He has a CD with all the Green Haze information contained on the disc. Getting the information deciphered is paramount. Incredibly, he finds his old lost love Loretta in San Pedro. Sam and Nina close in on their friend Griff's house and wait for the photographs that Sam has routed from the lab. The agency activity is substantial with a two-pronged threat from Sam and Nina and Garrison. Special groups are set up with the goal of stopping them. All this while Grafton mixes with the national leaders in Pangaea, the intelligence operatives and company leaders. Let's jump into the fray as the international spy thriller Green Hay by Robert P. Fitton commences now. Green Haze, Chapter 14. Being an only child, Pritchard liked being in charge. With Grafton overseas, he handled all things domestic. Maybe when he was Grafton's age, he wouldn't relish the power the way he did right now. At age 33, five years out of Yale Law School, he had risen fast and commanded a force of hundreds of men. He was a respected analyst with a capacity for bold action. But now he was in a bind that threatened his career and the agency. He walked briskly down the dimly lit corridor and entered the glass-walled organization room. Five senior and field logistics men were seated around a small cherrywood conference table. At least Edgar Mitchell had not deemed it necessary to fly out of Washington and personally provide some impetus into the crisis. But Pritchard knew from a morning telephone conversation in his car. Mitchell was watching the domestic side of Green Haze very carefully. He almost unconsciously pushed his hand through his curly hair, now wishing he had gotten a haircut this afternoon. They were studying his actions as he set his leather briefcase on the table. No doubt someone had tossed out a premise about his being too young for the job. Or maybe his plans were too grandiose, and that mentally rocked the conservative think tank. The large TV monitors and map readout screens jumped with activity. Reports were coming in from all over the world. Most poignant were the explosions outside of Argos, Pangaea. Rebels were closing in on the capital, bringing green haze to fruition. During the temporary lull, he popped his briefcase. The domestic prognosis was not so good. Roy Garrison had slipped their grasp in San Luis Obispo and likely possessed a CD prepared by the Campbells containing detailed information surrounding green haze. The second problem was the photographer and his wife. There was little doubt they had swam across the St. John's River and then disappeared. The fact that two civilians were eluding a nationwide search was not looking good for his position. He cleared his throat and Charlie McCabe nodded at him. McCabe was a man who could see many facets of a problem and, unlike the rest of them, was not locked into a preconceived notion about implementation. McCabe ruffled feathers with his sarcastic humor and Pritchard liked that. Gentlemen. Pritchard pulled the field reports from the briefcase and set them on the table. I do not feel as though our position is compromised at this point. That's a bold way to begin a briefing. Pritchard peered at Norman Sears' black-rimmed glasses and white hair. Sears forged a dignified image of an experienced Brain Trust member. I hope all the facts will buttress that conclusion, Pritchard. Pritchard pictured Sears in his earlier years when he couldn't hide beneath the glasses in the silky white mane. Garrison and the Peters have not affected Green Haze, Norman. I've just spoken with Craig Grafton in Pangaea. He's flying into rebel territory tomorrow. Before his aircraft is fired upon, he'll parachute into the prearranged checkpoint. Colonel Manville himself will, the rotund Milburn de Villers, a holdover from the Cold War, stood abruptly. De Villas hated Pritchard and was angered Grafton had taken him under his wing. He banged his fist on the table. His draw cut through Pritchard's stomach. Son, this is a domestic briefing. We all know what's going on with Craig right now and what his mission... I understand that, Milburn. He wanted to call him sir. 
My point is that all operations are going forward despite these domestic problems. I will address the domestic considerations momentarily. De Villers, his chin beginning at his ears, leaning forward like a pit bull wanting to kill. He tilted his head, looked at Norman Sears, and then sat down. Pritchard wanted to give them both a swift kick into retirement. That day would come. It was just a matter of time. They knew it, and he knew it. Craig will spend whatever time it takes with the colonel. What was not discussed at your briefings was the domestic consumption of this operation. Papers have already been prepared for the media. Disinformation about the Pangean intentions will place the blame squarely on President Mbutu. At the same time, our people have prepared a list of Mbutu's civil and criminal abuses. The human rights people will carry this over the goal line. There is sufficient cause to bring this situation to international arbitration. President Mbutu himself is dead center in this. Our informants have provided substantial reports of torture and imprisonment of opponents. Secondly, if you check your briefing papers, you'll find a ledger sheet, and the press will delve into this with their own people. We're talking about years of skimming profits out of the oil fields into the Pangean presidential palace. This will sink Mbutu in the public opinion polls. We also have those poll results. He looked directly at De Villers. The information was detailed and perfectly gathered. Yet the veteran analyst shuffled the papers on the table. Then he stood and activated monitor number three on his panel. Let's put this thing in perspective, Cam. Then he had Sears roll out a video graphic outlining the military situation in Pangaea as of 1800 hours last night. In the north, near Lake Shara, the largest concentration of rebel forces was now marching west toward Argos. The newly captured towns were highlighted in red. Think we're all aware of the Pangaea situation, Norman, said Pritchard. Sears looked him in the eye. Strategically, these towns would appear to have no value. However, with the concentration of arms and men, they will, with the proper guidance which Craig Grafton will provide, help secure Argos. This is a major, well-planned operation, which is why I can't understand what's going on here in the United States. This couple and the reporter? We can't let them roam freely. This must be stopped. Well, we're close, said Pritchard. Sears grimaced again. Davila's massive head rose like a burning sun in the stifling heat. I would suggest that we get into the Garrison and Peters situation. Presently. Green haze and all its imperfections is frankly threatened by what you do or not do. My God, I'm worried. How do these two tourists evade our domestic operations? Not to mention the FBI and the state authorities? Pritchard knew, no matter what he said, De Villas was not going to like it. But neither would Sears. And now the more neutral Charlie McCabe was ready to join in. McCabe was slightly older than Pritchard, under 40, and had an open view of things. I don't think Green Haze is threatened, Melbourne. Pritchard owed McCabe for that one. When they begin the attacks on the uh, selected oil fields, Mbutu will panic, especially when they set the oil wells ablaze. Most of those fires will be for our own domestic consumption, and strategically it will mean nothing. But it will force Mbutu to panic. Neither Sears or De Villas were listening. McCabe detailed Grafton's second option involving pressuring Mbutu into dropping his surcharges in return for United States military aid. If Mbutu stabilized prices, the United States would turn on the rebels. But that strategy might lay open the door for other areas of influence by the Chinese and Middle Eastern power blocks. When Pritchard finally spoke about Garrison, De Villas produced an almost imperceptible, arrogant smile. Garrison should have been killed twice. We're all aware of that. Let's look at the positive side of this. Nothing's been leaked to the press. De Villas didn't even look up as he spoke. Has anyone speculated on what's on the Campbell CD? Yes, Milburn. He was ready for that question. We'll assume that Garrison knows the chemical breakdown of both the Pisiac compound and the morotoxin. If he can understand it. I know I can't. That is an excellent point. We don't want anything linked to our operations. Well, my concern is green haze, said Norman Sears. Just better hope that nothing about green haze is contained on that CD, Norman, said De Villas. Just the two products. 
and no names, said Sears. Pritchard folded his hands. Amen, the old man smiled. Norman Sears stood and faced the group, and he thought before he spoke. We're talking about a high-level operation not approved by anyone in official government. Never mind approved by our people, but what would the press do with this bungling? This couple from Iowa should have been allowed to return to Iowa. The film should have been taken in a calmer and more well-thought-out manner. Now we have dead local police, media coverage, and two individuals on the loose. I really don't give a damn about what's on the CD. Kill Garrison, kill the couple, close the wound. Pritchard thought the situation was out of control because of Norman Sears's convincing presentation and seniority. Sears was not concerned about Garrison, but wasted no words in criticizing the operation from the Campbell's house to the restaurant raid. Pritchard interrupted. Not to extend this argument, Norman, but our guys did their job with that gas line. The fact that Garrison happened to be in his car. Well, where was the backup? Never assume total confidence. Assume the worst, Pritchard. McCabe spoke up. That's exactly what we're doing now, Norman. The search is underway now in Iowa of all the Peters' friends and associates. We're monitoring the phone calls coming into Marquette. In addition, our people are drawing up lists of anyone from the past. Any place they might have run. But the divers are still scanning the river just in case they are dead. What about Garrison? asked Davila's. The same. Edgar Mitchell has made a personal plea with Roger Hobson of the Dispatch in Los Angeles. He's agreed to cooperate with us fully. We had to pull a few strings to get him what he wants with the FCC, but that's in place. If Garrison tries to call a paper, we've got him. People are standing by in Los Angeles. In briefing papers on his personal background and contacts over the past 10 years, we'll be on your desk within the hour. I'm hoping that both problems will be solved before the end of the week. And if you're interested, Norman, we've already formulated dissemination campaigns against both the Peters and Garrison. It's just a matter of plugging in the people whom they contact. McCabe had made his point. The meeting broke up with no more interruptions. Pritchard did not receive a handshake from either Sears or DeVillers, nor did he confront them further. McCabe wandered over to him when the room had cleared. Pritchard was concerned how much Sears and DeVillers would disrupt his efforts. Feeling like the faculty's against you? asked McCabe. Pritchard grit his teeth, almost smiling. He looked at McCabe's bright blue eyes and translucent beard stubble. Charlie, I don't trust them, and I know Craig doesn't trust them. McCabe lit a cigarette. Craig is cagey. He has to be. I'm hearing things. What things? Well, I'm not sure yet, but Craig may be veering off from the official plan. You might want to watch him. Craig? Why? Maybe old-fashioned arrogance. Craig thinks he's above everyone else. Pritchard closed his case as they headed out of the conference room. Keep me briefed. Ah, well, at least you know when old DeVillas is blowing off steam. Same is true with Norman, but Craig? Craig is so good, so smooth. That's why Mitchell sent him into the thick of this. Pangeans would never suspect a high-level guy like Craig would carry out a clandestine operation. The rebels will rescue him gladly. He'll be saluted in the press as he lies like hell. Fun business, isn't it? Pritchard's lips curled. He stared at McCabe and said nothing. Then he patted his friend on the back. Thanks for bailing me out back there, buddy. Someone has to cage the tigers, Cam. Green Haze, Chapter 15 the handgun Griff gave Sam five hours ago was visible as a rough, half-lit convolution atop the bedroom nightstand. Sam prayed to God he would not have to use it. He had only shot a gun once in his life, a twenty-two caliber when he was twelve years old, during a Boy Scout campout. The difference between aiming and firing at Mr. Watkins' silhouetted target and taking on those killers back at the St. Augustine Hotel was enough to keep him awake. Nina's face was deadly smooth and peaceful in the low light. He nudged her side so she stirred. Back in Marquette, he had slept beside her night after night as the days mundanely passed. When had he been able to step back and think about how precious she was to him? He longed to have Jason rocking in his arms again, or to be slowly walking down to his Main Street studio and watch the sunlight through the trees along the way. How had things gotten so out of control? 
all those long hours since the attack, and he still wasn't sure whether the answers lay in the photos, nor could he know what actions to take or where to go. Griff had almost convinced him to use the local security person with contacts. This guy might hide them in safety without funneling any incriminating information to the proper authorities. He stood and walked from the bedroom. Every noise outside threatened him, and the house had a calliope of creaks and groaning pipes. Not what he needed on a sleepless night. He shuffled onto the braided rug and gazed across the silver-lit room. The counter phone was the link to the outside world. Only this afternoon, he had held that receiver and almost called his father. Nina was more frantic about how her parents would take all the news reports. A new course of action was necessary once they received the mailers back from the lab. Griff had also mentioned how he could scan the pictures into his computer. His old friend claimed it would provide a good storage place. The night passed slowly. He channel surfed and caught a brief news clip about the hotel shooting. It was all old news now, more of an enigma than a threat to the authorities. He leaned forward as the video swept the parking lot and showed the yellow police lines and a shot of the sob. Yet the reporter summed up the story by saying both he and Nina were missing and presumed drowned in the St. John's River. The report ended with the camera zooming out from the bridge. By 4.30, he realized sleep would elude him, and he stayed out in the living room. The burgeoning glow across the eastern sky transformed the outside neighborhood into recognizable forms. Griff was only six blocks away, but Sam was trapped in isolation with no exit. He dozed in the chair between five and seven. A phone call from Griff stirred him as one of the morning news programs flipped across the TV screen. His friend was off to work, but insisted he'd be home by 11 to catch the mail delivery. Sam wanted Griff to contact his security friend. Griff confessed that he'd already left a message with the guy's wife without getting into specifics about the St. Augustine affair, insisting the security guard call as soon as possible. I'm just afraid the security guy will blow it. I feel so alone. You have to take the chance, SP. You can't just stay there hiding the rest of your life. You weren't there, Griff. He held the phone like he was going to crush it with his hand. You haven't been on the run from these bastards. Stu knows or claims to know everybody. You didn't tell him anything specifically, did you? No, I'm trying to get him to return my call at this point. Sam's eyes stung. They had to act now, but he was afraid. Just don't tell him about Nina and me. Feel him out. I have to see those pictures. Assuming I photograph somebody who didn't want to be photographed, that's the crux of this. It can't be anything else. Damn it. Wrong place, wrong time, Griff. Well, it's just going to be a matter of tracking down those people, maybe talking rationally with them. I don't know if that's possible. Long silence indicated Griff understood this was a very tricky matter. One mess-up and these guys with automatic weapons would descend over the area. Listen, SP, the mail comes in at 11. I'll call you. We'll be here, Griff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened. Me too, buddy. Me too. Nina sat with him all morning and stared at the TV. He alternately dozed, waking with her arms firmly around him. It was his only security now. His former life, his studio in Marquette, all his clients and friends washed away like some storm-surged tide leaving only debris over an eroded shoreline. The worst part was the uncertainty. In desperation, he debated whether to divulge everything to Stu. Taking a chance that this got back to the gun-toting killers from the hotel was a risky venture. Maybe it was better to have everyone think he and Nina had died in the river. But as the days passed with no bodies bobbing up along the riverbank, that scenario was becoming less and less credible. Nina was in the kitchen when the phone rang. She set down her sandwich and looked at Sam for a second, then picked up the receiver. Yes? Her face contorted as she shook her head. What did they say, Griff? Are they sure? Sam crossed the room. What happened? No mailers. Oh, no. He grit his teeth and half-closed his eyes. Griff wants to talk to you. She held out the phone. Griff! His friend's voice was clear and firm. Then where the hell are they? I don't know. They put a tracer on it. Only after I insisted. See, they
They don't think it's a big deal. They just don't know. I know they don't know. I just hope those bastards from Florida don't intercept this somehow. I can't take this waiting game much longer. Griff could not allay Sam's fears and squelched the moaning frustration. He assured Sam he would personally check with the post office later. Sam hung up the phone but kicked the chair in the kitchen as he crossed the wall. He shook his head and then banged the wall. Why did we have to be in Florida anyway? Nina seemed more in control. She scurried over to him and held him. Then she took his hand and they walked to the white tub, set on the legs in the middle of the bathroom. She put in the drain stopper and turned the knobs. Water gushed from the faucet and she adjusted the temperature as the tub slowly filled. She undressed him and then removed her t-shirt. This was not an act of passion like the hotel room. She grasped his hand again before they stepped into the tub. Sam ran back and retrieved the gun. He returned to the bathroom and put it on the blue hamper under the window. Then they stepped into the massaging waters and their slick, moist bodies slid against each other and down the porcelain. He thought about Jason in simpler times as he locked his arms in place around her stomach and she rested her head against his chest. Somehow they were going to get out of this. She said nothing as he slowly moved the face cloth along her cheek and kissed her matted hair. He gazed out the window. An older gentleman with a shopping bag shuffled by the hedges next to the sidewalk. Sam looked at the gun and then back outside. The older man continued along the sidewalk. Living this way, under constant threat, was pushing him to the edge. He was not sure how long he could go on before he cracked. Green Haze, Chapter 16 The day was cold with a threat of snow when Garrison arrived in the high desert. He had hitchhiked from San Luis Obispo. Some kid in a small compact, returning from a spring vacation, brought him down the last 150 miles. All during the trip, he was obsessed with the unfolding events. He had sifted it through his head a thousand times. Some branch or agency of the military had transported the VED. But who manufactured the Pizac compound and the morotoxin? Lynette Campbell had linked the antidote drug with the disease. Somebody is spreading this disease and bringing in the drug. It's only a gut feeling, Roy, but it makes damn good sense. They're making big dollars if they orchestrate all that. Who and why? You have to prove it first. Prove deliberate outbreaks. Good luck. And the link to the drug. And the money. Fat chance. Damn them. I miss you, Richard. He sent the kid into the restaurant to get supper while he ran across the rocky lot to the payphone. He was still reeling from his brother's death and fearing his own life as he neared Los Angeles. The CD was still in his pocket, but his anger surged. The only way to prove anything was to call Roger Hobson and get the paper working on this while he stayed in hiding. Then he would head out to Loretta's place in San Pedro and find a computer. Five years ago, she had walked out of his condo. Maybe she'd help him just one more time. He dialed the dispatch, still trusting no one. He disguised his voice. Dispatch. He didn't recognize the woman's voice. Oh, yes, ma'am. Well, would you be so kind to connect me with Roger Hobson's office? One moment, please. Another line rang, and he heard Hobson's secretary, Joanne, but he was still afraid to reveal his identity. Roger Hobson's office? Oh, yes, ma'am. Uh, Mr. Hobson, please. I'm sorry, Mr. Hobson is not in this evening. Whom should I say is calling? Yes, Roy, who the hell is calling? And what do you ask her now? Oh, oh, I see. Well, let me talk to Rory Garrison, then. I'm sorry, sir. We have no Roy Garrison working here. Oh, no, he writes a column for your paper. Sorry, there's no Roy Garrison here. I see. Thank you. He quickly hung up the phone and stared at the sinewy Joshua tree silhouetted against the high desert twilight glow. Is this how they do it? Kill my brother and then strip my identity? Somebody got to Hobson. Who will care about this information if I can't get into a column? My job. They took my damn job away. It has to be the government. Some kind of classified bullshit. A few snowflakes brushed against his face as he stepped into the cool air. The kid's yellow compact was spewing moist exhaust into the cool evening air. He opened the door and got in the front seat. 
The car was filled with a heavy smell of french fries and coffee. So, who the hell are you anyway? asked the kid. Garrison picked up the steamy hot styrofoam cup. I'm beginning to ask myself that question. Look, kid, I know you're headed to Fullerton, but I'll pay you 50 bucks to get me to San Pedro. Sure. The kid bit into his burger and pushed Garrison's food across the seat. I can use the money. All of Garrison's friends and contacts were useless now. He was in a giant chess game. Those people who wanted him dead would wait for his next move. Even the cops were a risk. Informants on the street might sell him out. Going to Loretta's house, if she would let him in, was the only answer. Then he could head to one of the college campuses and find some chemistry egghead competent enough to interpret that CD. The idea of someone removing him from the record sent his mind spinning. Who would put the word out to Roger Hobson? People read his bylines and columns, and he could prove he worked at the dispatch. But that's exactly what they wanted him to do. It was the old setup. He was slated for death if he came running down there protesting their denials. He trusted the kid, but covered himself by being dropped off downtown. Later, if some hard-nosed guy with a gun grilled the kid, he wouldn't know where Garrison was headed. But they probably would figure it out. That put him on a timetable, racing against them. He had to unravel this VED and drug thing and nail those responsible before they got to him. The air was warmer than the high deserts they started down the streets and found Sycamore. This was where Loretta went after the relationship fell apart. All the time away, chasing stories that meant nothing now, had poisoned the relationship. He was told by a mutual friend that she had met somebody else years ago. As he walked alone, under the street-lit palms, constantly checking from behind, he knew he had let her slip away. For whatever reason, he might have fought her from leaving, but he never did. Loretta had a small stucco atop a rising corner lot. He hurried up the cement walk but hesitated at the red sports car in the driveway. Before he headed inside, he panned the neighborhood. Somewhere there were people working furiously trying to find him. He marched forward. It was one of those situations requiring action and not thinking. He rapped on the screen door and heard noise inside. He saw Loretta, her hair now tinted a red auburn. In her pink jogging suit, she looked good, but better than he had remembered. The outside yellow porch light popped on. She peered through the screen and her mouth dropped as she opened the door. Roy, are you all right? Loretta, Roy, you look like hell. Glad to see you too. I know I'm intruding. She kept looking him over. What's wrong? Loretta, I'm in trouble. Deep, deep trouble. She opened the door wider and motioned him inside. Garrison looked around the front yard as he stepped into her new surroundings, gazed around the black appliances in the kitchenette, and then she shut the door. She turned to him with her brown eyes crisp and moist. He almost thought she missed him. What happened? In the far room there were small artifacts, music boxes and knickknacks from the past. But he didn't see this so-called boyfriend. She was the woman he once thought about marrying and she motioned him toward the red and white checkered tablecloth. They sat, and she continued to study his face. In her eyes, she saw a longing with no future. Then she slowly leaned toward him as he began his story, from the night he got the call from Lynette Campbell. Then he slowly sketched out what had happened, and his suspicions about the VED and the drug connection. Loretta had waited through too many sleepless nights when he didn't return from street reporting, but no story he had ever chased had come close to this. She held his wrist as his voice cracked when he talked about Richard. I've stumbled onto something I can't get out of, Loretta. I'm sorry about Richard. I, I like Richard. Who's behind all this? I need to get to someone who understands chemistry and drugs. If I can track down where this stuff is coming from, Maybe I can figure out the larger picture. Listen, I know I'm intruding on your private life. If you mean my relationship with Jean, it's been over for a while. I'm sorry. Don't be. She motioned with her hands. Roy, listen. The only person I remotely know associated with chemistry or pharmaceuticals is Sarah Humphreys. Garrison snapped his fingers. She worked with the fish. That's right. She worked in the aquarium out at Laguna Beach. Lived in apartment 16B. Laguna, Laguna, we walked hand in hand at Laguna, Loretta. Remember the sun on the cliffs and our feet sinking in the sand? 
Everything was ahead of us then. Damn, those were good days. Not enough of them, though. She was a nice lady. Sarah moved to La Jolla, the Marine Institute. If she couldn't figure out your CD, she could point you in the right direction or at least get you to a computer. You don't have to help me, Loretta. I know that. It's good to see you, Roy. Things were getting kind of boring. I was just telling myself, gee, I wish Roy would come by and be in some kind of mess that he couldn't get out of. Garrison smiled. Only problem is, this isn't your usual kind of mess. People are dying. My brother is dead. Loretta. I don't want to be counted among the casualties. Green Haze, Chapter 17 Thin ridge gray carpeting covered the darkened 41st floor of the conference room. The long window span overlooking the main highway cutting through Argos provided the room's only light. A selected group of people knew that Mbutu, fearing the rebels would take Argos, was in hiding and preparing to leave the country. Seville quickly assumed the premier role in defending the capital city. He provided everyone with intricately drawn maps and graphs outlining the rebel troop movements. Within a few days, the general would be ready to launch a major offensive. The plan to surround the main encampments around Lake Shar and advance west was an easy but foolhardy operation because Argos and the government would fall long before the encampment battles. Grafton held a gold pen between his fingers, his head propped as if he were hanging on General Seville's every precious word. Seville, more than the rest of them, might have sensed Grafton's duplicity. The general showed no indication he was aware that Grafton was working closely with Colonel Manville and the rebels. More of concern was whether Seville was cognizant of his potential Chinese dealings. Seville let a large black man, claiming to be a munitions expert, give a report about tactical field weapons. But Grafton gazed out the window now, his mind fixated on the next step of Green Haze. He would be inside an F-16 cockpit tomorrow morning on a doomed flight, officially billed as reconnaissance. Seville's booming voice shook the room. Craig, do you agree about those placements? Chinese weapons coming across the desert. Precisely, General. Your contacts have done an impeccable job. We do not wish a confrontation with the Chinese. Well, I don't think you have to worry about that, General. My reports indicate quite clearly the Chinese are not equipped for a large-scale operation. As you might surmise, they are in this for profit, as well as the goodwill motive. They have nothing to lose by backing the rebels. They might have listened to Colonel Manville's rousing optimism. Seville, his omnipresent medals glistening from his red and gold uniform, stepped forward. He nodded, and his dark eyes were moist. Colonel Manville used to be a trusted aide and planner. Brave man, but now he only wants power. Everyone wants power, General. A man like that in power would mean the destruction of this country. What little gains we have made for our people would be lost in a seizure of power, and that would be catastrophic. The shanty shacks defied the General's reasoning. These Pangeans were crushed economically while the rich prospered in the sea of oil profits. Seville must have known that, but that was irrelevant. Grafton's thoughts shifted back to the situation in the United States as some other inconsequential blowhard talked about the limited Pangean Air Force. The fact that Garrison and the Peters were not coming forward was a sign the attacks had scared them away, but he was not so naive to think it would end right there. Cam Pritchett's future hung in the balance. One slip-up by Garrison or the Peters and the teams would move in. They all had to die. No exceptions. Grafton's fear persisted. All his activities, including the Chinese dealings, would become public if Green Haze fell apart because of Garrison or the Peters. He trusted Pritchett and Charlie McCabe more than he did the old guard. It was not Pritchett's fault those field agents had panicked and started shooting up the St. Augustine Hotel. Then he thought about the canceled reception at the presidential palace that evening. The oil fields were not yet attacked, but Mbutu was out of sight. Once Manville was in power, Mbutu would be shot, and the disinformation campaign accelerated. But now the Chinese had complicated the plan and may have secretly backed Seville. Grafton speculated they would next want Manville killed. Seville spoke loudly. Mr. Grafton, I would like you to come to my residence this evening for a short visit. No problem, General. 
I will have a driver at your hotel by 6 p.m. Grafton nodded and jotted his time on the notepad. When do you leave on your reconnaissance flight? Asked the logistic man. He turned his head. We're leaving at 9.19. They all had serious yet self-confident faces. Everyone present followed Mbutu in his impervious attitude to the outside world. Grafton gazed over at the peasants below in colorful garb, moving around the shanties. Mbutu and the rest of his crowd had raped this backwood country. When he arrived at Seville's cosmopolitan home, Pangean version of Blair House in Washington, D.C., Grafton was emotionally charged and ready to fly out in the morning. The limousine stopped near a mauve canopy with military markings. He looked up at the gray-green mansion's long, clear, louvered windows. Three uniformed men stepped out to the curb, checked the area, and opened Grafton's door. He quickly moved under the canopy. Inside, an elegant woman with a British accent and sandy hair to her shoulders greeted him. She called herself Mrs. Collins. Tall and thin, she wore a flat, dull gown, matching the house's outside color. She escorted him to a bright sitting room with wool carpet. They sat on a leather settee as one of the servants brought hors d'oeuvres and champagne on a silver tray. General Seville is fond of cheese and crackers, she said. Grafton produced a half-grin as there were no cheese and crackers on the silver tray. He was not sure whether this was related to the Chinese proposal. Tell me, Mr. Grafton, did your work take you out of Washington often? Grafton raised one brow and then studied her dangling gold and emerald triangular earrings. Only when I'm in search of things, Mrs. Collins. Are you a friend of the General's or just a fixture? Call me Mava, and the answer is correct on both counts. The General's wife and I are good friends from before the Revolution. I see. At that moment, Seville, filling his dark suit like a cake that rose over a baking pan, strutted into the sitting room with three aides. He introduced them quickly, but Grafton memorized their faces and their features. They were all young men, lean and at attention. I was thinking it might be a good idea, Craig, that you and Mrs. Collins get to know each other. My pleasure. You are so gracious, she said. It bothered Grafton that he had no background sweep on this woman, and he did not like Seville playing matchmaker. He was sure he had seen Mrs. Collins either diplomatically or socially when she was younger. The general was trying to somehow guide him into the Chinese thing. Seville would not be so stupid to approach him directly. There would be hints and intimations enticing him to take the bait. And Butu, even in hiding, would have his people watching Grafton too. He doubted whether Seville was working directly for Mbutu, but he discounted nothing. They walked into the formal dining room, inundated with older historical pieces, an original Picasso, and area rugs from the Middle East. I wanted you to see my residence. It's important that you not view me as a second fiddle to a third world president. Grafton said nothing. He could see the tiny sweat beads forming across Seville's dark forehead. You see, the president had his own way of doing things. He always has. Tunnel vision can get you in trouble. You need a world outlook. Play the various forces against one another. A formidable game, General. Yes. They passed into a tile kitchen with towering ceilings, dozens of glass cabinets, and a black slate countertop. Grafton was not exactly sure what Seville was up to. Umbutu says it and it comes to pass. No discussion. No alternate views. This country needs diversity. He brought Grafton and the wafting Mrs. Collins up a glossy wood stairway in the rear, sharply winding upward to an intersection of halls on the second floor. Here were smooth porcelain vases and more paintings. An oversized gold and crystalline chandelier was spread above the main marble stairway. Impressive residence, General. You've earned it, sir. Thank you. I have arranged for you to spend the night. I feel I must decline. Seville raised his finger and he glanced at Mrs. Collins. I insist. Very well. And I do wish you to pass on to your president. We are not like Mbutu. Grafton parted his lips. Well, I must say I'm not as privy to the president's ear as you might think. Modest. 
All men have ambitions, don't they? He turned to Mrs. Collins. And woman? She cautiously raised her brow. Great, uh, all men do have ambitions. Now Grafton remembered her. He had seen her in Saigon. After the Cambodian incursion, she went by the name of Ballard, wife of a guy who had made a fortune dealing on the black market with the Chinese. She had disappeared when Ballard was caught and killed. Rumors abounded that she had turned Ballard in and got his money. This woman liked money and high living, and she was on the prowl again. Seville rambled on for another 15 minutes, but never mentioned the Chinese directly. I want you to remember that, Mr. Grafton. There are ways to take care of men. Grafton debated whether to respond at all. He had the urge to knuckle this guy up against the wall and set him straight. The Chinese needed Grafton, the only person with both the means and position to promote the Chinese ends to remove Manville. But they must have already started paying off Seville. Can be more direct than that, General. Don't play me for a fool. No, I cannot talk now, and I would not begin to play you for a fool, Mr. Grafton. They will deal with you soon. Listen to them. It will be worth your while, I assure you. Mrs. Collins latched onto his arm, and Seville continued the tour as if nothing illicit had just been said. It was as if the general were a child, overcome with simple desires, but as an adult, he was coveting what could only be won with blood, pushing Seville into power in the middle of a popular uprising where he was despised was a neat trick. Colonel Manville in the rebel front, with his covert support, would take the capital in days. Mbutu would be dead, and so would Seville, unless things changed drastically. Green Haze, Chapter 18 Pritchard was five miles away from his Maryland home when he got the call from the office. Two people who worked in front of the consoles analyzing data all day were requesting to talk immediately about the Peters case. The call went through, clicked, and he heard Fred Schulman, a guy performing this type of technical experience since the Vietnam War. Fred, this is Cam Pritchard. I hear you. The signal was stronger on the high wattage channel. and I made the call actually to our Cincinnati office. What happened? Some security guard named Rushak in Paducah has called FBI informants and had them run checks over the wires about Sam and Nina Peters. Pritchard looked in the mirror and pinched his lower lip. Could be a police nut or something like that, Freddy. Maybe, but there could be more. Greed? He continued to stare at his dim image in the mirror, his glasses reflecting the oncoming headlights, and he knew he was about to turn around and get back on the beltway. Okay, let's do this. I want three logistics men in my office in 45 minutes. While I'm on my way back, I want you to check everything concerning Peter's or his wife's background. We have to cross this guard with them. Sound as though you have the same gut feeling I do, Cam. Pritchard nodded in the car. Yeah, let's just track it down. Exhausted. There's too much riding here. He spun the car around on the asphalt, screeching the tires as he headed back. Regrets flowed freely now. The shootout in Florida should never have happened. Grafton's guys should have gotten the bridge film, and that would have been the end of it. Now two people were running scared and threatening the whole Green Haze operation. He had to close that gap and at the same time get Garrison before Grafton got back from Africa. Charlie McCabe, dark mustache carved into his round face, stood with the taller Fred Schulman. He pointed at Pritchett and waved a teletype in his hand. Hey, Cam, we have something. I was afraid of that, Charlie. He took the yellow paper in his hand. The type was crisp and referred to the University of Michigan graduating class from 15 years ago. There was a brief rundown of Sam Peter's campus activities from the photography club to the swimming team. Son of a bitch, that's how he did it. He swam that river. We were so busy going over his Iowa life, we glossed over Michigan, Cam. We can forget everything on that page except Mike Griffith and his hometown, Paducah, Kentucky. Pritchard looked up slowly. Well, well, well. And guess who the security guard works for? Asked Shulman. MGG Enterprises, Mike Griffith. Okay, let's put it together, gentlemen. 
He walked out ahead of Shulman and McCabe. What's Craig's status? Has anybody been briefed yet? He heard Shulman's voice again. That plane will be going out in eight hours. The weather looks good. He's got balls bailing out of that F-16, said McCabe. Well, nobody ever said Craig Grafton didn't have balls, said Pritchard. What if somebody screws up and shoots down that plane with him in it? We live in a world of things getting constantly screwed up, Charlie. Look at our end of green haze and trying to contain all this bullshit. After we settle things with Peters and his wife, we need to find Garrison. That is a priority. I'm not ruining my career. I want this wrapped up before Craig gets back. If Craig gets back. Pritchard turned. Oh, he'll be back, Fred. You can bet your next year's salary on that. Schumann chuckled. I don't get a salary, Cam. This is all service work. Green Haze, Chapter 19 Griff called before driving to the triple-decker. Sam waited at the window when his friend arrived, around supper time. With the warm bath and a few hours sleep on the couch, his mind was clearer. But he still held the gun tightly, and he put his ear against the door as his friend climbed the steps. Even when Griff called from the hallway, Sam stood back and sent Nina into the bedroom before he let him inside. Griff looked at the gun. Hey, don't get too paranoid, SP. I don't think they'll be looking for you. I really don't. None of the law enforcement agencies have anything. Nina stuck her head out the bedroom doorway. How do you know that, Griff? Sam scanned the outside hallway and then shut the door before turning to Griff. You've been talking to your security guy, haven't you? Yeah, they think you're dead. Nina joined them. What if somebody tips them off? Exactly, he turned to Griff. That's what I'm afraid of. I think you should come over to my place. You can't stay bundled up here for the rest of your lives. I'm waiting for a call from the lab about that damned mailer. They're tracing it. Well, it's past six. They're gone for the day. It'll be here tomorrow. Come on, I got pizza on the way. And I want to do some things with the computer. This green haze thing. Let's float that out there. Is that safe? I have an anonymous website I can go to. Now, come on, let's have some pizza. What do you say? Sam looked at Nina. The urge to live a normal life again was overwhelming. Going for pizza won't put us in jeopardy. I keep remembering those guys running out of the Saab and drawing their machine guns, said Nina. Sam nodded, but he agreed with Griff. Two hours, then get us back here by eight. We'll listen to what you have to say about the computer. Can you input the photos into the computer? Oh, yeah, come on, I can do that. Transfer them with the software and then let them sit. You're talking about the internet, SP. He looked at Nina. Well, let's go with him, Nina. A large crease formed between her brows as she nodded. Eight o'clock, Griff. Show us the computer, then we get back. Griff's skin had looked like a small flatbed photocopier and worked in conjunction with the computer to duplicate whatever was placed on the inner glass surface. Griff said he could store more photographs into the computer's memory or send them to websites. Sam leaned over the counter as Griff's family picture in front of the Christmas tree scanned, and a few seconds later, some elaborate software package transformed Griff, his brothers and his sisters, and his parents onto the color monitor. Sam leaned over the counter as Griff's family picture in front of the Christmas tree scanned, and a few seconds later was on the color monitor. So you can do this with Sam's bridge pictures whenever they arrive. Yeah. They talked freely about the old days again. Griff recounted some stories that Nina had never heard, while he did more work with other photographs, bringing them up to his website. When he finished, he typed in the website address, www.mgg.com, then he printed it up and handed the paper to Nina. Here, you can keep this, and you can post any messages on the posted area. Okay, then we'll get the relevant pictures on the site, then what? Well, Stu Rochak will have some people look at the blow-ups, and we'll find out who the bridge people are. We might be that much closer to reasoning this whole thing out and getting you guys back to Iowa, or at least know who to talk to. Sam nodded and stepped back as he crossed his arms. And we can give them the damn prints, even the negatives. Griff cleared the screen. If you guys want to go back, what are you doing? I'm going to see if I can find anything on this green haze thing. Sam wanted to know if that was prudent. Griff kept reassuring them that no one would track him down. If he found anything even remotely resembling green haze on the web, he'd let Sam know. But Sam was getting nervous again and wanted to leave for the triple-decker apartment. Griff agreed to take them back as they planned tomorrow's activities. 
At 11 a.m., he would return from his office and pick them up. Then they'd drive back to his house and get the mailers. Sam feared another sleepless night. Fatigue was cumulative and they snuggled under the covers within minutes after Griff brought them back to the third floor apartment. Sam, I don't know anymore. I just don't know. Seems like a hundred years ago we were on the beach, Nino. We have to find out who those bridge guys are. That's the only way we're going to get out of this. In the blackness and silence, the streetlights slowly brightened outside the window. Sam gripped the gun with one hand and draped his other arm over Nina's back. Her long, blonde hair spread over his shoulder. We've been together for a long time, Sam. Except when you were away at school. I remember when I first met you. It was in eighth grade. You were standing across from me at the junior high school dance, and I said, I'm going to marry that girl. No, you didn't, liar. You're right, but I liked your hair. It was long even then. So the story goes. I thought it was so weird when I talked to you that I didn't get a butterfly stomach. I did. You never told me that, said Sam, half sitting up. True, you were always so easy to talk to, Nina. So what did you do? You ditched me after that dance. I didn't see you for two weeks. I like to keep women on the hook, Sam smiled. We dated right along, but it wasn't until later that I really cared about you. He told the story slowly in the cold darkness. His high school friend Calvin Williams had wanted him to go to the skating rink at the state highway. But he and Nina were away for four years. When he saw her on the ice, effortlessly gliding along as he slid out on his oversized hockey skates, he was captivated. She had matured, but not just in a physical way, although he did notice her long legs, tight white sweater, and wispy blonde hair. It was the way she conducted herself when he talked to her later at the snack bar. They both had become more sophisticated with the same junior high school innocence. In some ways, it was as if he had never left the dance. Her arms tightened around him. She pulled up the quilt as if they were hiding from the outside world. That was a long time ago, Sam. I love you so much, and here we are trapped, away from Jason and everyone. On the run from forces we don't understand. I don't know how much more I can take. He nodded and kissed her cheek. I liked the way you kicked up your legs when you skated by. Well, I knew you were watching. He kissed her lips, crawled on top of her, and whispered softly as he placed his hands along her smooth skin. I'm still watching. Green Haze, Chapter 20 Sam looked up at the ceiling. The sun had risen long ago, and the brilliant mid-morning light stung his eyes. He had slept deeply. Nina's eyes popped open, and she smiled. He kissed her hair and forehead. Why is it I think we're going to get out of this? Maybe we will. He turned and pulled his watch from the nightstand, ten past ten. He fell back against the fluffy pillow and looked up at the ceiling. Mail comes in fifty minutes. At least we can see those pictures. What do you think about storing them on Griff's website? I still want the prints, Nina. His stomach was pumped with adrenaline now. So many things could go wrong. Just because no one had confronted them since Florida didn't mean their pursuers were not lurking. He took Griff's card from the stand. Sam set the card next to the watch. At least Griff understands all this. He's a good guy. After all these years, just to drop what he's doing and help us. I think he kind of likes the excitement. Well, we could do with a little less excitement and a lot more Iowa. I feel bad for everybody back home, not knowing whether we're dead or alive. My father is a strong guy, but my parents must be talking to Reverend Stevens. I know they are. My mother must be freaking. Poor Jason. Oh, my God. I want my baby back. They lay in bed for another few minutes. Sam rose. He went over directly to the phone and dialed Griff's house. It was early for his friend to return, but it was worth taking the chance. Waiting for those pictures was now unbearable. He tried a second time, and when the line kept ringing, he returned to the bedroom to tell Nina he was taking a shower. You want to use it first? No, go ahead. Griff will be by in about a half an hour. Sam usually took a long shower, but this morning he rushed, and so did Nina. As 11 o'clock approached, they were watching TV. He had begun the habit of pulling back the shades to check for Griff's truck. For the next 15 minutes, he looked out the window between scenes of Gilligan's Island and calling Griff's house. He went back to the phone at 20 past the hour and tried to call Griff's real estate office. 
Three office people bounced in between the phones, but he soon found that Griff had left the office at 10.30 and told them that he was going back to his house. Damn! He dropped the phone back in place and checked the gun in his pocket. Something is wrong. Griff is supposed to be home. Let's get out of here. He grabbed Nina by the forearm and headed for the door, but she stopped him. Suppose there is something wrong. Do we really want to be walking right into it? We need those pictures. He pulled back the chain and unlocked the door. They bounded down the stairs. When he saw the outside light through the storm door, he took out the gun and panned the yard. From the shrubs to the side street, he saw no movement. Nothing unusual. Nina leaned forward. If somebody got him, it's not going to make any difference. If everything is all right, we can reach him by phone later. Talking about my buddy out there, he could be bleeding to death in his truck. Sam pushed the aluminum latch and the door creaked open. The fresh air filled his nostrils and they moved onto the cement walk. Again, he checked the area. His heart thumped against his ribs as he moved deliberately through the shrub opening and onto the sidewalk. Somebody could easily target them right now. Every second was filled with the constant threat of being followed, and he wasn't going to take any chances. He steered Nina through a series of backyards before emerging on an adjacent street. Even then, he looked for any cars waiting or people that might be out there, but everything was quiescent in the suburban neighborhood. They linked arms down the cracked sidewalk along a chain-link fence and ranch houses. The dim sunlight was giving way to a brighter sun higher up in the blue sky, casting shadows over the burgeoning tree buds. The pictures, obtained after hours of thought and weighing the photographic information carefully, were his best guess. He had also been through the entire trip in his mind, wondering if they had seen anything out of the ordinary. Everything happened quickly after those pictures were shot. They would have confiscated the film in the car if Sam hadn't sent out the mailers. Those machine gun guys swept through everything. Nothing he or Nina bought was of any value or of a dubious nature. Only the film was a liability. He prayed they had not figured out where they had mailed the film. They reached the corner and he peered around a huge oak. A single compact car with an elderly woman leaning forward toward the windshield chugged toward him. Still, he stepped back. Can't believe this is happening, Sam. Nina watched the car stop at the corner, and then they continued. Sam was still alert when they crossed the road. I hope he's all right. Sam approached Griff's contempt cautiously from behind and scaled a small chain-link fence abutting a row of taller green shrubs. The swimming pool covered with blue plastic was just ahead. He studied everything across the yard and along the vertical gray wood boards. The windows were dark. Let's get to the mailbox. They raced along the side lawn, darting in and out of rows of trees toward a huge bush beginning to flower near the house. Griff's truck was parked behind the fence. Maybe he had just arrived, but Sam's eyes fixated on the mailbox. I'm going to check that box first. Sam, I don't like this. He tightened his face and scurried along the fence. Like a vaulting runner, he scaled the fence just before the truck. He rushed up to the mailbox, but the metal container was empty, and he retreated quickly. Nothing! I know Derek went from the front. Well, let's call it. We need those pictures, Nina. Sam kicked the cellar window and then unlatched it. He swept the glass away with his shirt sleeve and helped Nina inside. Then he lowered himself into the dank, half-lit basement. He gently rubbed his finger along the gun trigger. With his other hand behind Nina's back, he headed for the stairs. She started to say something, but he shook his head. The dim light gave way to darkness, and he had to feel his way up the banister as she held his shirt. When he thought he had reached the top, he reached for the doorknob, slowly turned it, and light hit his eyes. He brought Nina into Griff's front foyer. Place was too quiet as they moved over the gray tiles. He peered around the empty living room toward the front door's yellow side lights glowing in the morning sun. They both turned and climbed the white-carpeted stairs to the upper-level kitchen. He dared not say anything as the gun shook in his hand. Why was the truck out there with no one in the house? Once at the top, they slid precariously toward Griff's rear office. At the corner, a man in a gray sweatshirt burst into the hall with his weapon drawn. Sam fired once. The man collapsed onto the blood-splattered white rug. Nina grabbed Sam. My God! My God! Sam pulled her behind the wall, but no one else came out. Where was Griff? He scooped the larger gun and gave Griff's handgun to Nina. Slowly he went forward, turning into the office. His friend was in a dark business suit, 
and a bullet had pierced his smooth skin above his Adam's apple. The computer and monitor were smashed, and an empty yellow and red photo mailer lay on the floor. Jesus, Griff! He wept openly, backing a hysterical Nina into the hall. The dead man on the floor had a coiled earphone cord spiraling down his sweatshirt. This man is some kind of government agent. Sam! Sam stood and retreated to Griff's office. Except for the blood all over his suit and rug, Griff looked as if he were asleep. Sam cried again, his hands shaking as he reached into Griff's pocket and dug out the truck keys. He gazed over his old friend one final time. The front door slammed against the wall as he stood. He thrust out the larger gun. For a moment he hesitated, but then jumped onto the hall and fired. Three guys in suits dove to the floor. He pulled Nina toward the rear sliders and heard someone yell as he slid the doors across the track. We can deal, Peters. We have the pictures. Sam knew better than to believe them. He and Nina raced across the deck, leaped over the railing, and sailed onto the grass. His mind buzzed with options as his friend's dead body flashed into his thoughts. He ran with Nina across the yard and turned near the lilac bushes. Someone was running around the house. He gripped her hand and headed for the next street. We're going back. Use your head, Sam. We can't fight them. The truck. Shortwave radios blasted around the house. He paralleled three men crossing the backyard and then ducked behind an evergreen hedge along the adjacent yard. They sprinted to the truck. She slid across the front seat as he started the engine, shifted quickly and skidded down the street. The side windows exploded and bullets punctured the truck's metal exterior. He pushed Nina's face down on the floor. In the mirror, the men with the suits were lined across the road and firing as if they were at a midway shooting gallery. Sam spun the trucker around the corner. Two black and white police cruisers blocked the road. Why were the cops involved in this? He whipped the truck around 180 degrees, jammed on the brakes near the sidewalk, and shifted again. The cops moved out. He pushed the pedal down, almost swiping an oncoming car as he tried to outrun them. Nina, they've tipped off the cops. They have the pictures. Sam wove through traffic, forcing cars off the boulevard. He turned onto a golf course access road and crossed onto the green itself. Nina screamed as they raced down the fairway. They want us dead, Sam. We have too much on them. He felt guilty for having gotten Griff involved as he drove toward the clubhouse and looped behind the dumpster. A bottled water truck was back to the clubhouse's rear door. Out! Out of the truck, Nina! Truck doors flew open and they ran around the dumpster. A kid in a sweatshirt lugged two large plastic jugs into the clubhouse. They rushed up the truck ramp and squeezed behind their water jugs. He positioned himself next to Nina, near the front wall. At least 50 jugs separated them from the rear doors. Short time later, the kid returned and hurled three empty containers into the truck. The door rumbled downward, shutting out the light. They rushed up the truck ramp and squeezed behind the water jugs inside the truck. He positioned himself next to Nina, near the front wall. At least 50 jugs separated them from the rear doors. A short time later, the kid returned and hurled three empty containers into the truck. The door rumbled downward, shutting out the light. Sam held Nina against his sweaty body as the truck, resonating with loud brass music, backed up. Hidden in the darkness, they had bought a few precious minutes of time. After the driver removed more water jugs at the next stop, Sam helped Nina through the stacks. They stepped onto a busy city sidewalk. His thoughts were muddled with Griff dead and the police now involved. They scooted off the main street, and he faced Nina in a side alley lined with small boutiques. Nina, she clung on to him. So sorry, Sam. So sorry this whole thing happened. I don't know what to do. Those pictures were our last hope. He pretended to walk along with her as other people approached. I killed one of their people. That's the pretext that they're going to use. We're screwed. No, I can't think like that. You've done nothing wrong. We've done nothing wrong. You snapped the pictures. We know that's what they wanted. Maybe they'll back off. Yeah, if I hadn't shot that guy, he would have killed us. You had to kill him. They walked along the boutiques. Then we get out. We just keep going, Nina. We just keep going. We don't stop. Jason won't have any parents. She cried against his chest. 
Before, he had the promise of finding out the identities of the men on the bridge. Now they could keep running, but it was just a matter of time before they were caught and it all ended. What a mess. What a mess. You know you've done nothing wrong, yet the power of the government is going to crush you dead in a second. Like Garrison, you've left a trail of death behind you, and you have no one to help you out of this impossible situation. In Sam's words to Nina, We just keep going, Nina. We don't stop. I'm reminded of that quote of Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I'm not going through hell. I'm boarding the airplane. Join me next time for episode four of Green Haze. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz pizzazz.com.